today's guest, an amazing artist, Malak Matar. I always grew up with this atmosphere of painting. White canvas getting turned into a beautiful masterpiece that evoked something in me. The more I was doing these sketches, the more I felt ease inside me. I was not able to travel. It killed me that my paintings had more freedom than me. The sky was gray. I looked up and the military planes, which were really scary, they were so close to, to the ground. Everyone was running. My mom picked me up to go home and I said like, wow, I'm finally safe because I thought my school was only attacked. And then after this, I realized it's my entire home. It's my entire city. Because every time there is a new attack, there is new weapons and new technology and new systematic bombings. It's indescribable the injustice and oppression. Yes, I'm getting attacked and people who live a few kilometers away from me are living their life. Peace is no longer a priority. There should never be peace when there is occupation. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Scherzer on Instagram and Mikey Intifada. If you think the Taliban is bad, but the Likud party is super good. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review if you can. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod and feel free to reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. I'm so excited for today's guest, an amazing artist, a young female activist coming to us from Gaza, Palestine, Malak Matar. Malak, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you, Lara. Thank you for having me today. Malak, you are 21 years old. You've lived almost your entire life in Gaza, much of it under siege. And you are the survivor of four Israeli military attacks on this tiny piece of land that you call home, with the latest Mm -hmm. assault taking place just a few months ago in May, where Israel leveled entire residential buildings in Gaza and wiped out entire families as they slept. Mm -hmm. We can only attempt with words to capture the reality of your life, but... They probably aren't going to be sufficient. But in any event, can you give us an impression of what it has been like to grow up as a young child to a young adult under Israeli siege and missiles? Uh, Thank you. Of course, I grew up in the Gaza Strip to a very loving and big family that were very supportive and also encouraging, uh, whether it's education, art, social life. And... You know, I I grew up to this uh, very artistic family too. So from my mom's side, I always grew up with this atmosphere of beautiful painting, of the fascination of a a white canvas getting turned into a beautiful masterpiece that evoked something in me. When I was six years old, I was at my class and with other 40 kids. So we were like 40, 50 kids in a very small, small room. So we had this registering uh, paper. So you write your name, the phone number. And beside it, that was a very weird thing on it, which is the city of origin. And I was like, what's that? You know, I'm, I'm from here. And it's like, no, I'm not from here. 
I'm from a village that is totally occupied. So this is where my identity crisis started. Like, wait, so I was born and raised here and I go to the sea as it's mine and I go there confidently as it's my place and my home. But in fact, it's I'm a refugee here. So I went back to, to my family and I told them, what's the matter? Like, what shall I fill this blank thing? And they said, Qariyat al-Jora, which is al-Jora village, which in, in English means home. I don't know if it matters that much. So I started having this emotions that I, I didn't feel stable. I was only trying to imagine what home feels like from my grandparents' narratives of how the house looked like and how they uh, were expelled from their homes and how they were treated with a humiliation in, in the, the camps and in the tents and with uh, honorable supplies. That So there was a lot of sadness and anger while the stories were narrated and that got in me as a child. So when I was eight years old, I was doing my final exams. I, As I said, growing up in an encouraging family, I was always pushed to be the first. So I had this final exams and while I was doing it, we had this emergency thing in the, in the school. So teachers were pushing us, go out, go out. And I didn't know where to go, but I'm trying to, to make you also imagine, visualize with me because you might never survive an attack. So the sky was a gray. I looked up and, and the military planes, which were really scary, they were so close to, to the ground and everyone was running. Like, so there was a fear. So my mom picked me up, my siblings to, to go home. And I, say, I said like, wow, I'm finally safe because I thought my school was only attacked. And then after this, I realized it's, it's my entire home. It's my entire city. So having, you know, these very loud bombings were so terrifying. So I was running all the time in the home and it felt so threatening. Although I didn't, I didn't get it, you know, I wasn't, I didn't get how the sound can kill a human and how the buildings can fall down. Although it's something I saw in the TV. Anyway, so I survived the war. I survived the attack to be complete, to, to be correct. And I had difficulty speaking. So the trauma affected my ability to speak, to connect with people. I was terrified and I thought everyone was evil. Everyone was a scary uh, human being because I knew the military planes were actually led by human beings. And I didn't really know the politics of it. I just thought there's an enemy just trying to come. So anyway, I, I went back to school. The first few weeks were really quite sad. So just like a side note, we do not have mental health programs when I was young. We did not have professional mental health provider who uh, told us how to manage fear and how to manage growing up and, and, and you know, with the post-traumatic symptoms. So we had none of this. So actually just several years ago, I just realized there's something called PTSD. So anyway, in, in 2012, I went back to school in another day. Uh, we had another attack starting. So it means that everything I survived in 2008 has came in a larger scale because every time there is a new attack, there is new weapons and new technology and new kind of systematic bombings here and there. So at 12, I, I can't also say I knew what was going on, but I knew that death was really close because I realized that what exactly is happening is the Israeli occupation is bombing the Gaza Strip. And this means there will be casualties or also like Palestinians who get killed, children, families, you know, students like myself. 
So I survived for the second time. My story will be repetitive, but every time it comes with a small thing. <laughs> so going back to school, it was quite depressing because I went back like the first few weeks or let's say the first few days. We had teachers giving us a few days to only speak. So to, to, tell, like, to tell our stories and to tell what we've seen. And it was a quite tragic because you, I, I, like a few of my classmates has lost cousins. One has lost, I believe, her brother, the other her father. So there were like real losses and real emotions that were evoked in the class that was quite shattering, like for young kids to describe the terror of having their home demolished and having their neighbors or, or their families getting killed in front of them. So there was a lot of injustice that I could feel it very present in the class. And, you know, every time, because uh, some of the studying I've done as a kid, were very poetic, especially in Arabic. We have poems about homeland. So like this means crying every morning while singing Biladi uh, Biladi and Fidai Fidai, which is uh, the Palestinian national anthem. And we also had these poems about homeland, about uh, family. So we as, as Arab and also as Palestinians, we care about these connections about, and about these feelings. So you always find someone crying in the class, you know, because of the loss, because of these, because of the gap that was left in their lives after the passing of, of people they loved. Anyway, I served, like I went through another assault in 2014 which was really long it felt forever and this one was really intense it, it was a life-changing thing for me because it was 52 days so i was in a lockdown uh, inside a lockdown which is the gaza strip it was you know the attack where over 2000 people were killed it was genocides being committed in different neighborhoods and uh, you know the occupation invaded the Palestinian land causing uh, hundreds of people losing their lives in a matter of days. So what was the shock or the slap in the face was seeing my neighbor, which she was only one block away. She was a peaceful old Christian lady who really celebrated everything uh, with us. And she was like a real regular guest to my grandmother. I saw her murdered in, in a very brutal way in front of my eyes. So that was quite terrifying. Although I, I know that a few miles away, an entire families are getting wiped up. But seeing a human being who I known and met and who was part of my life and childhood getting killed and pulled by the ambulance and recovered from, uh, you know, the destroyed buildings and seeing her husband who only lived with her mourning her death because it's quite tragic has made me realize that it's, it's indescribable, like the injustice and, and the oppression. And especially like, you know that you are on this alone, that yes, I'm getting attacked and people who live a few kilometers away from me are living their life. You know, they're going to work, having peace in their life. So that was quite a shocking event that made me just want to do anything. So I had this energy, this negative energy and this uh, overwhelming feelings that I wanted to scratch the walls from from this intensity. Then I decided because you know, as I said, I grew up into an artistic family, and I know art was a way of telling and and self-expressing. 
So I had this like just uh, paper like this and, and I had, you know, a pencil and I started doing sketches. And, you know, I thought for a second that there was something that is left of my shoulder, like my chest. So I was like, I was doing, the more I was doing these sketches, the more I felt kind of ease inside me. And it felt kind of like I'm running to, to a home. I'm running to a sanctuary. And that was one of the best feelings and the worst moments in my life. So I survived for the third time. Strange. <laughs> so my mom realized like, wow, like you are really good at drawing. So I will bring you some material. So we went to, to an art store called Art Here. It's a, like a, an old, uh, lovely store like uh, that has few art material. And my mom bought me acrylics and, and canvases. And I felt like a real artist. And I wanted to, to, to really explore everything. So I was painting all the time, sometimes even missing my food, missing meals. I just felt like I couldn't believe myself doing it. I felt like I found myself. So one year after, I started getting noticed and getting some attention from media and from cultural organizations. And I had my first solo exhibition at the age of 15, which was a quite interesting and it's, it is what made me a feminist. And uh, later I will explain. <laughs> but I received some comments about like, don't paint political things and paint when you finish art school. And why do you do the hair like this? And why the women are not wearing scarf? So it's, it was a very interesting experience. And then I started getting invitations to, to be everywhere, to, to be in France and Britain, and the US and Spain. And of course, I was not able to travel because I was living in a prison. And it killed, it killed me that my paintings had more freedom than me. You know, I was able to roll my paintings and they traveled everywhere, but I was stuck. And I felt like the, what, it's, it's the right of an artist to at least be present with their paintings. But, you know, I had Skype calls uh, after my visas got rejected and I had this very lovely conversations with people and uh, it was truly inspiring. And I, I loved how people were interacting and were moved my by my artwork so yeah israelis never yeah. approved your visas to exit gaza for the purpose of appearing at an art exposition exactly. your paintings. they knew that your entire art career was just a cover right for terrorism <laughs> yeah and by the way like this is an interesting point you know that every work that i ship gets checked by the Israeli office, by like the mail. So every time I go there to the mail, we have like one mail and they said, make sure the artwork is not political. Otherwise it's going to be confiscated. So I tell him like, you see me every week and you keep repeating the same thing. I get it. <laughs> I go through this censorship that what if I wanted to paint the flag, but I knew if I painted the flag, it's not going to reach its new home. So it's wow. uh, and, and was, you know, yeah, yeah interesting part, uh, Lara, is since the attack, since May, Israel banned the entry of canvas, which is the most important thing in art, you know, the medium that you paint on. So it's been banned. And I was, you know, as much as it's ridiculous, but it makes me laugh, actually. It's so funny, the fragility of the occupation. Like, are you afraid of what's going to be on the canvas? So... My, a friend of mine, he was able to smuggle some canvases into Gaza Strip. So it's like, uh, it feels like I'm holding a precious thing because I'm going to paint the reality, which 
and the occupation doesn't want me to to actually paint. You know? I'm just envisioning like a warehouse with a bunch of blank canvases the Zionists have because <laughs> they don't actually have any expression and then like half-eaten chocolates as well yeah because you you saw the story i'm sure about how the apartheid state banned the entry of chocolate into Gaza last exactly. week and even wedding dresses and wedding dresses yes colors like black and white and the main colors are also banned so maybe the, the colors the, acryl- the acrylic paint is banned certain colors are banned yes certain colors and i asked uh, the store like why black exactly And, and the, the source said, there's something, the black, that they are afraid that it will be used in, in, a, in, in a military purpose. And it's like, do you get what you're saying? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's actually like, it's also very sad to see how much the production of art has also decreased since the attack. Because people, and I also, me, myself, are going through this healing thing. But because we are, you know, fit up. I could say. So I remember when a few days ago there was another bombing and I was like, it's not going to happen again. No, like, <laughs> because, you know, it's, you, you feel like you are really in, a, in this phase of something inside you has already been killed. So it's, you know, you don't want to go through the process again and again. You are able to ship your artwork outside of Gaza. Yes, that's right. Which, by the way, for our viewers, you think, oh, that's a crazy question, Laura. Why are you, I mean, you know, it's, they have mail just like we have mail. It's like, well, actually, they can't order things from outside because yes. Israel doesn't allow them to. So, you know, Amazon, all of that stuff, none of that will ever enter Gaza. Yes. You can't order anything from websites outside of Gaza. Exactly. So that's why And I'm you, asking, because yeah. that's part of the siege. That's part of Israel's siege is that it, exactly. it basically cuts you off from the outside world, not only physically in that you cannot travel there without an Israeli permission, which you most likely won't get, but mm-hmm. also digitally, right? Gaza is, a, is, is invisible digitally. Exactly. We don't see it when we're you know, engaging in online commerce. It's an open air prison. You know, you feel like these two million people. It's not only... You know, it's, it's quite humiliating to, to actually live in this, uh, this tiny piece of land and uh, to go through all of these things because, you know, the siege is beyond borders. Because as a parent, like, I grew out of this idea of like, borders and siege, and, but it's also cultural. It's also humanitarian. The idea that Israel counts the calories of each individual, what the hell? What if I want to eat more than 2,000 calories? Like, <laughs> it feels like everything even the water you drink you feel it's occupied you know even the sea whenever I go there and I'm not being a trauma queen I'm, I'm just I go to the sea I want to enjoy it but the idea that if I want to cross the few miles they allowed I will get killed like what not even the sea that we see as the window for the world and blah 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 it's even occupied and if you cross it you get killed which several fishermen get killed So everywhere you go, it's like a reminder of the occupation. I exist. Reminder of siege that I'm here. You know, people here would be 30, 40, 50, and they never really met someone who's not Palestinian. You know, they would, even like when we have Americans coming or like Europeans, it's like strange people, you know, like we think of them as they live in a different planet. So that's why I realized that, you know, I live in Gaza because 
it's not similar to anything that people would know. It's completely a special case and it's special place and uh, with its goodness and badness and with people's goodness and people's badness. But there is separation. Like We are very disconnected. And that's why having conversations like this that brings us more together is so important. Because at the end, when people hear Gaza, they, they think it's somewhere that they would never reach, when in fact, it's several hours by the plane. Well, Americans and Europeans are actually pretty weird whether or not you live in Gaza. So that's a correct assumption. <laughs> yeah, I think, Malak, what you're saying is is really essential, which is that you have been disconnected from the outside world. and that is very direct result of the Israeli policy that is imposed upon you and rules every aspect of your life. What's especially crazy about it is that not only does it separate Palestinians from the outside world, but it also separates Palestinians from Palestinians and Gazans from Gazans. And the only reason we are able to even know each other or get to speak with one another is because we're doing so online. You know, I exactly. can't come see you and you can't come see me, right? Yeah. yeah. But yet we share the same homeland. In your case, you're a refugee from 48. In my case, my family is from Gaza and Yaffa. But, but, but still, we're Palestinian and we share the same homeland. Exactly. And, and, exactly. and we don't have this opportunity to meet and know one another and, and, and work with each other and create content and, and projects and do things together. You know, all things which... If we were in our homeland together, we would be able to benefit from. So despite that, oh, I think she's frozen. Connected again. That's okay. That's totally fine. I I was just talking about how we're able to get together through the internet, even though we can't meet in real life. Exactly. And then Zionists, Zionists were like, no, (laughs) no. Yeah. (laughs) So welcome back. A lot of my friends and family in Gaza felt that the apartheid state's latest assaults in May were particularly shocking and brutal as compared to the previous assaults, which you just took us through beginning in 2008 and then going on 2012, 2014, because of the intentional attacks that took place this time around on residential buildings in the city centers. Now, Israel has Mm -hmm. always targeted residential buildings, but there seemed to be more of a focus on residential buildings in city centers as opposed to rural areas this time around. Did you have the same impression that this time things were particularly brutal, even though less people were killed than in previous assaults? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'll just, you know, say a, a bit of a few words about this attack and what it meant for me because I lived in Turkey for almost four years doing my BA and for all this time I was not able to go back because the borders were shut and I was worried that if I get in I would never be able to go out and lose my scholarship which actually happened to several students before me. So finally the border opened and this like this semester went online so I decided to go back to, to Gaza which is my home which I thought was a home, but I'll, I'll get into this. So I had this mixed feeling of excitement and fear. Excitement because I'm going to finally reconnect to see my family, to see my little sister who like, uh, she's almost my height and I didn't see that. And always also some fear because I was afraid to be reminded by things that I try to move forward on or to try to move on from. 
So, and to basically be triggered by the lost attacks I survived when I was younger. So I came here and uh, in March, uh, funny enough, I came here in Women's Day, which uh, coming through the border was a huge shock for any woman. <laughs> Stayed here for a bit and then we heard of escalations happening. And that was during like the end of Ramadan, the beginning of Eid, which is a very important and sacred time for like families. And, you know, there's spirituality on it that is really special and it brings families together. And it's, it's, a, it's a nice time to be in. Then we heard that nine children of one family, of the family of Al-Masri, they all get killed like two days before the Eid. And we knew by then it's another attack. You know, we knew by then it's it's another assault happening because this is how it usually happens. It starts very big. And for me, that was quite a shocking thing because I realized that I might be stuck. I'm going to, to go through this again, which I might not survive because I was so lucky to survive the three attacks before. So it was 11 days. And, and these 11 days were the most scary parts because, you know, I lived three different attacks but this last one was quite different because the intensity of the bombings that were shelled all at once were so higher than before the numbers of buildings that were demolished were so high you know as you said the center was also attacked which which is quite damaging for not only the building but also for the businesses for the economy for many people's how they live it's it's mainly the center and it's also the only art store but also demolished so it was a quite emotional to see like huge landmarks in the city getting demolished, like Hanadi Tower, like Shurub Tower, which is the highest. And to also see that over 200 were killed, children and, and entire families, that some of them I know and some of them my mom told because she's an English teacher and she lost some of her students. So these 11 days, I never felt so close to losing my life like this time. It was... Then I said, if I survive this time, I would just mean that I'm so lucky because every time I sleep and I just wake up because of the sound of a bombing and to, to make you visualize it more, the bombings were so loud. So I live in the center. So no matter if it happens in the south or the north, it's as destructive as it's happening in your neighborhood. So it would make the bomb the building. So the building and my, my bed specifically were shaking all the time with the intensity of the, of the bombings. So sometimes, like uh, in the previous attacks, uh, the windows would be falling because of, of the power of, uh, you know, it's more like an earthquake effect. So, yeah, I survived <laughs> again. The numbers of times I said survived is so many times. But, uh, yeah, I survived four times, but I'm still surviving. I think I, I haven't yet reached the point where I'm I'm in, in a good situation. It just it took me a while to, to to physically walk because that trauma of the attack has caused intensity in the muscles and has caused interrupted sleeping because for the entire eleven days I slept barely for like one hour here, two hours here. And I would always wake up with the sound of bombings. So yeah, I think these uh, 11 days have changed my entire life, has made me see things with so much clarity and see things without the lens of a victim, with the lens of, of a witness. And this is very important because 
Maybe we can speak about this the, the media because the media can be also pressing more than the occupation. By portraying us as, uh, you know, as terrorists, portraying us as sometimes victims and sometimes as heroes and as resilient and amazing and strong. And that, in a way, normalized the numbers of attacks we survived. You know, I, I had an interview with Azizina. They asked, after four attacks, you should, or in a way, have you built coping mechanism? Because, you know, you are used to it. And this by itself is a big sign that, you know, some people are normalizing the fact that because we've been bombed once, twice, three times, it means that we are used to it and we'll just move on with life. But it's wrong. We are, in fact, not heroes. I'm not a hero and I'm not a superwoman. I'm just a human being that is very vulnerable, especially at the time of attacks. I have ups and downs in my life. So as many people uh, in the Gaza Strip. So we are not really... We are not really special about being so strong, you know. Some people have hope, some people don't. And so I'm, I'm working with my art to actually uh, focus more on the stereotypes that people have on us and have on me as a Palestinian woman from the Gaza Strip. I, I think it's really fascinating how you say that you're, you view these events as a witness and not as a yes. victim. Your witness in history to this brutality, to this colonial violence, to settler colonialism. And not only are you a witness, but you are you are living it, right? You can witness something but not be a part of it, but you are witnessing exactly. it as being a part of it. And exactly. what you and a lot of the other Palestinian accounts were doing during this last round of assaults was that you would actually go live or you would post raw footage from Israel's shelling on yeah. social media to share with the world what you were living, what you were witnessing in real time. I watched you, for example, share clips from your bedroom. Yes. Of the night sky lit up orange. And, you know, so what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Do you, what do you do in those moments? I mean, you said you didn't sleep very much. Do you sit with your family? Do you just wait? Is it just a waiting game? Mm -hmm. Do you pray? Do you, uh, is there anything to do? Because I think what some people may not fully grasp about what it's like to be a Palestinian living under Israeli siege is that not only are you living under these military assaults, which from clips that we saw on social media are nonstop, so, so, yes. so brutal, so loud, so violent. And like you said, yes. it makes the whole house shake. But not only is that the reality, but you're not allowed to actually leave Gaza to escape the reality, you know? So that's, that for me is the one thing that makes Israel's assaults on Gaza particularly exactly. grotesque is that the 2 million people that Israel has, has, has decided to pummel with shelling and bombs in Gaza are also people which Israel is keeping prisoner in Gaza and not allowing them to become refugees to escape the violence that Israel is imposing on them. They're also the same people who the Zionists previously made refugees from their homes, as you very eloquently stated, you're not from Gaza originally, you're, you have your, your place of origin, which is in a village that the Zionists destroyed or they just simply occupied and now they live in your houses during uh, from from the time period of the Nakba and on. So you're living in this complex reality where it's like, 
you have to endure the violence because they won't let you leave. And the only reason you're there in the first place is because they expelled you from your homes a few generations ago. Totally. Yeah. So what do you so do? I, what have you done in the, like, what did you do in those 11 days? Were you painting during that time? Or does that, is that something yeah. that you do later? Like when this is over in the moment, is it just yeah. fear and panic? Yeah. So I will elaborate a little bit on this idea because it's also good for me to remember exactly how I reacted. You know, it, it was a mixture of many feelings because when you are being under a constant bombing, And there is absolutely no guarantee or safety, neither any shelter. It gives you this sense of helplessness. It's like, okay, so let's assume I just happen to be one of the families that got wiped off, you know, entire families. What this will change? Or what will this mean? Nothing. So it's quite distracting to, to, to one's self-esteem. You know, it's like you mean nothing. You get killed and life moves on. So this idea, it makes me feel like I really live in a war zone. You know, it may, it gives you this idea that your life or like my life is not worthy. So you there's no way to escape this reality because, in fact, the reason why you are getting bombed and are under danger and under constant bombing is the fact that your life is not worthy. Because if it was worthy, you would be protected, you would be in a shelter, you wouldn't even live under siege or under occupation. So I realized the separations between us and between the world. You may die and it, exactly. and it, won't, change, it won't change the reality. Exactly. And, and one thing about surviving you know, attacks or, or even living, you just feel like you live in history. You, you know, you live in, in, in a time where observations are so important. So I wrote so many things. I wrote journals and I did sketches of people who lost their lives. For example, the Talibani family, like she was a young woman, she was pregnant, she has two little kids and her husband, they were all killed. So I did a sketch of that. I did a woman who were praying and she was killed in front of her kids. So I tried to imagine it and I also drew it. So I was doing so many drawings, how horrific what I'm living is, but how important it is for me to document it, to be awake and to see everything because what I see, other billions of people are not seeing and my narratives of what I'm seeing is so important. So I had this belief of the importance of what I see and how I convey it through my art and through my tools. You are a living primary source, right? People yes. will reference your art, your writings in the future and will know that it's real because you were there, you lived it, you saw it yourself. And that's so difficult because from an outsider's perspective, When we try to talk about what's happening inside Gaza, we're always gaslit by the Zionists, right? So I'll cite an article by Al Jazeera and they'll be like, oh, you can't use Al Jazeera as a source. And it's like, oh, well, maybe if I just bomb their buildings, that'd be better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like there are scenes in living under that tag that sometimes you wonder whether it's uh, real or not real because you feel like you are living in in a first or a second world war 
It's like, you know, how people get shattered, their bodies getting held. And when you, you find footage of a head being thrown and a body being thrown, you find a woman sitting on her window. And then all of a sudden the, the building gets everywhere and gets demolished where she's there. And she just jumps off of the buildings while it was destroyed. So these scenes, sometimes I wonder, like, am I living in a horror movie? Or is this something that I'm actually seeing? So sometimes I go through moments of denial that, yes, I saw this for the fucking hundred times, but my mind is incomprehensive of what I'm, I'm seeing because it's beyond one imagination. So I get questions people ask me, like, we can't imagine how you're going through. And I said, me too, <laughs> because it feels that, yes, I'm going through it, but I can't understand it. Yes, thousands of people have been killed by the occupation, but every time I hear a story of a human being who got killed, part of my mind refuses to believe that it's real because no child who's, who's supposed to only be growing and, and playing and being embraced by his family should be killed. It doesn't, for the logic of a human being, it doesn't, it's not something that you can digest and process. So that's why painting has become so painful. I did a painting during that attack and I'm now doing a series of based on people's lives who no longer exist, you know, who are now buried in the graves. By the way, graves used to be also bumped in the last attack. But they, I, I like, try to, to paint them in their last moments because no matter how much you feel death is coming, there's part of you, which is, like, maybe the survival mode that keeps telling you you're going to survive, you know? So the body tries to blink to any chance of surviving, and that's why you have some hopeful and, and, and some fake hopeful thoughts because humans want to live you know we are born not because we desire death but because we really want to live it's a quiet but horrific what i've survived and as i said i i go through time even my body was not responding and and seeing this footage how much i was terrified and how much my heart was broken but what the occupation did sometimes it made me lose my humanity so i would have this moment i would just scroll down on my phone seeing footage of, of cut uh, children and, and families who are mourning the death of, of a family member. And my heart is like, no, I can't really feel. All right. And then scroll down. You see 100 children or 100, you know, humans could kill. And, you know, part of, of my heart stopped feeling. And, and this, the loss of this part of humanity is because of the intensity of the bombings, the intensity of, of uh, the atmosphere that is, that's quite uh, incredible. You know, it's a quite uh, unbelievable for human beings. What has it been like in Gaza since the latest assaults and the cessation of the shelling and the alleged ceasefire? We know that Israel has broken the ceasefire on numerous occasions. We also know that Palestinians in Gaza are continuing to protest the siege in large numbers. We know that those protests are just another instance for the apartheid state to use colonial violence on an occupied people, and that they have done that without any international outcry. Israeli snipers shot and killed a 12-year-old boy in Gaza named Hassan yes. Abu al-Nail in the head at one of these demonstrations against the siege. So, Malak, can you give us your impressions about how people are feeling now? I mean, does it seem to be that Israel has returned to business as usual? There's a siege. You're in an open-air prison. The conditions are deplorable, but that's by design. Do you feel like the siege is worse now than it was before the latest assaults? Do you feel like people came out of these last assaults with a little bit of hope because of the fact that 
the world's attention really did turn towards Palestine in those moments? How how do people in Gaza feel? Because I mean, I it's it's easy for me as an outsider, and I and and so sometimes I feel like an outsider. Sometimes I'm an insider. It really depends. I mean, as a Palestinian in diaspora, you're kind of it's complex. <laughs> it's complex. <laughs> it's really complex. And so I have family that are still there, but I'm not there. But I was on the phone with them, and you know, I was talking to them while all of this was happening. And it, there is some sense of hope, at least from them, that, okay, the world has finally noticed what we're going through. But I don't know if that feeling was just in the moment or if, if that's something that has been maintained. So can you give us a sense of what you think people are, are actually feeling and what the, 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 the ambiance is like in Gaza now? I don't know if it's right for me to say that, but Gaza is not concerned about the world. It's concerned about itself because, you know, I do feel that we've reached this point of, you know, disbelief on how much the world can change for us because I can speak about myself, at least. I feel not only I've been so disconnected about the world from the last attack, but how much I'm developing the sense of, of uh, uh, hatred. Is it a strong word to use? But this the sense of, of I don't care about the world because if the world cared about me or about us in the Gaza Strip, these attacks would not really happen, you know. But in fact, seeing government supporting Israel, seeing that even there are people who support Israel and they are donating and they are, you know, military aid and uh, all this, uh, you know, diplomatic support. So there's there is much there is less faith in in this world, and you know and. What made Gaza reach this point is actually the occupation. The, the, uh, the consequence of being under occupation and under siege is disconnection of, of uh, the Gaza Strip from the entire world. But I would say that the, the situation has been worse. You know, the siege has been worse. For example, since the ceasefire, as you said, I don't believe there's such thing as ceasefire because it's a war zone. Bombings ha can happen at any second. At anywhere, there is no restrictions on how much Israel can throw bombings here. But the thing since the ceasefire, the mail has been shut for two months. So passports, thousands of passports were stuck at, in the mail without like people were trying to get out, but they couldn't. Also, medical permissions. People were having a hard time getting them, although they would be in like severe conditions. So there were uh, bans on certain items, the canvas, which is the main thing for artists, and the chocolate, you know. So it, it's, it's, really, it's really ridiculous to even say that chocolate was banned because they thought it's, it was going to support resistance. Yes, they will eat some chocolate, but why chocolate? <laughs> and the banning of, of important items that we use here in the Gaza Strip. So I would say the situation, there's no, no positive indications that there would be any kind of improvements. How people are, people are fed up. This is what I know for sure. They are really, you feel they are losing their energy. So since the attack, there's a very beautiful piece that I will share part of it for a writer, the gospel called Muhammad Judah. 
He said that since the attack, people started speaking less. You would ask them how they are and they would not respond. And if they respond, they would just say, Alhamdulillah, which is thank God. So people have no capacity for anything, especially like the Gaza Strip is a very exceptional place where unemployment is at the peak. It's over 50%, where people are really living with minimum wages. The electricity, for example, it gets worse. Four hours sometimes, six hours sometimes, no hours. And also speaking about the water, it's still undrinkable and it gets worse because of the electricity. So unfortunately, there is no much hope in, in here. I see hope in individuals. Some people are determined. They want to, you know, they are determined to leave. You know, so the liberation gener generation is waiting for the soonest opportunity to leave, which is a reality because here you don't find yourself. Even here, you, you don't matter for the authority. You don't matter for uh, the government. If you kill yourself, you can do it. If, so I can't even vote. You know, I can't even choose who wants to lead me. So I live, I don't, I don't exist in a way, you know, I, I'm invisible for here and for the world and also stateless. So that's why creating art feels urgent. It's not something that, You know, I have the mood. I feel like I exist because I do art, because I feel seen. And it's my way of, uh, I'm more like painting my own voice. It's, that's why creation, even if I'm the only one seeing it, I just, it gives me the sense of purpose and the sense of existence. The liberation generation wanting to leave, that's all by design, right? The, the structures of the occupation have become so heavy-handed that life inside Gaza simply isn't tenable, right? The only thing that seems like a possibility is getting out. And they did that so that the generation of Palestinians would not struggle against the occupation, right? Yeah. They, they would simply just leave so that the Zionists could then claim that land too. Yeah. So it's, it's a different phase of, of ethnic cleansing. You make people's life unbearable and thus they want to leave. And, and, you know, coming back to the Gaza Strip, my relationship to it is love and hate. I know I love this place because there's parts of it that fascinates me. Like when I'm in a car with my family and I see this breathtaking scenes of sunshine and, and sunsets. And I was, uh, I'm always fascinated by how beautiful sometimes the city can be. But then when I, I hate the city, And I'm suffocated by it. I feel this way because of the occupation. Because the occupation wants me to hate the city. Because when I imagine Gaza without all these, you know, without the occupation, without the siege, I knew that it would have been my home. You know, I knew I would have wanted to live here and to build a family here. But unfortunately, the reality is completely different. Let's talk about your art for a second. So when you look at your Instagram, you see that you paint mostly women. There's very few male subjects in your art. Which I found offensive, by the way. <laughs> well. <laughs> um, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You can't, art should be provo provocative. <laughs> yes. I wonder if, do you paint... People that you know, are these women in your life, in your community? Is it all a reflection of yourself at different points in your life? Or are they not even real, but just sort of imagined individuals? Can you sort of take us through 
who these people are and what you think about when you go to create a new piece? Yeah, that's a lovely question. The women I paint are actually women I saw. So women I saw and did not forget. But because I'm the one who painted them and because, you know, each artist has their own persona. So, it's, you know, these portraits might for uh, some people feel similar. So I do also see myself in these portraits because they also, I, I paint my feelings with each portrait I do. So once, like just last week, I went to, I went to the dentist. It was like a market and there was a woman she was wearing makeup like, uh, you know, old Egyptians. So this huge eyeliner and, you know, it was scary and beautiful. <laughs> so she stared at me for a minute and I, it, she stayed in my mind. So I, I did a painting of her and I called her the unforgettable woman in Gaza. So some faces I see and I don't forget. So I paint them, you know, it's uh, as simple as that. That's how I am, but with breakfast burritos. Sometimes I never forget. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they have breakfast burritos in Gaza, Michael. <laughs> I don't know. We, don't. We, oh. have we have apple pie. And we have everything except for that. <laughs> except for that. <laughs> There's also oftentimes two subjects in your paintings. So it's usually two women. It seems like, I don't know if you were have been inspired by the work of uh, Gustav Klimt. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen Definitely. it, but it's like, it's kind of like a sort of modern resurgence of that, but then also it has very clear colors and features. The women have very clear, like Arabic features, Palestinian yes. features, but it did remind me a little bit, a little bit of that. But so are, are they, are they supposed to be sisters, mothers and daughters? Is it, is it more like themes, like, you know, like someone, I, this is one of my favorite ones. I don't know if you can see it. This one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You and I, I love it. It's like, uh, well, I, here you write that it, the poem by the Palestinian poet, Morid Barhouti, and I don't know if that's supposed to be his wife in the painting, because the poet, the, the, the poem is about his wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there is there a reason behind the the recurrent usage of the duality, the dual female figure? What are you thinking about when you put two women together? Is is there something deeper behind it, or is it you know just sort of something that you got used to doing, and aesthetically yeah. it works and it's beautiful, yeah. and they hold one another, so it's you know there's something interesting there to see, but. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your thought process there. The connection between women can really be interpreted by the viewer. So they can be mother and, and daughter, they can be sisters, they can be friends, they can be lovers. It, it really depends on, on how people view it and how much it can reflect something in them. But why I do do like paint female figures, because I'm inspired by female more than male. And that comes for several reasons. And sorry, Michael, for offending you again. But uh, <laughs> the thing is, I grew up in, in the Gaza Strip and it's conservative. So I went to schools where there were only female you know, so I grew up very close to, to their stories and, and, and to, to, to the patriarchy of the society. So once I had a classmate, she was only 16 and she was getting engaged. And I was like, what? Like, you are pretty young for getting engagement. And she said, my dad wants to. And he said, 
what your dad has to do. I was this little rebellious girl in the class and always this curious kid that gets always in trouble, which I'm glad I'm dead because I learned so much. But, you know, another girl, she told me, and that's why I paint uh, long hair in my paintings. I had a classmate and, and her hair was so long, was so annoyingly long. And I was like, why didn't you cut it? And she said, my dad doesn't allow me to cut it. And again, what your dad has to do with your hair? It's your hair. So I just ima- like I just realized how the male figure is so dominant to the female figure. And also in my family, I asked my mom, like, why do you always have to do the food? Why not my dad? So I tried to, to understand them, you know, like the society more. And I just realized it's why it's sexist. It's a quiet. It's male dominated and male think that they own women. Once a woman gets married, there is a limitation to, to the freedom she has. Of course, I'm not generalizing. I'm speaking about what I see. Uh, and also my grandmother has also influenced my, uh, my artwork, the two of them. One of them was so strong and she was so controlling and very vocal and never like shy to, to say the truth. And the other one was so affectionate and so loving and always talking about the stories of the Nakba, you know, how she was expelled and how she got married at the age of 12 and how, because she was beautiful and blonde, she, they married her so fast. So all these little stories, they were like stuck with me. And I just saw myself as a woman getting influenced by other women in, in my society. And I'm also like, I'm also vocal about, you know, the domestic violence. Sometimes people say, you shouldn't distract the viewer and you should only, only talk about the occupation. No, there is much more that I want to talk about my own. There is modernity, there is feminism, there is me loving a chocolate, me loving someone. There's much more to me than surviving the four attacks. You know, I love food, I love parties. I, I, there is so much, uh, many things to, to human beings than uh, what they survived. But of course, what shaped me is that that's, you know, what shaped me and, and shaped my, even the way I speak and the way I see life is definitely shaped by my childhood, my teenhood. But there's a freedom to art that I, I love to express in a very present uh, place. You know, art gives me the sense of freedom that I really love and I'm free to express it. That's, that's a blessing. Have any of your prints ever been sent back to you because they were rejected by the apartheid state for being too political? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm actually trying to, I will do this experiment. I'm going to, to, to paint something really political and see if it gets confiscated because I'm interested. But, you know, I had this print shop, it's called Etsy, and I had it in Turkey. So when I was in Gaza, there was no printing and, and there was very difficulty in getting my artwork scanned and printed. So I started in, in Turkey. So I haven't had this chance to send prints to, to, to their owners uh, elsewhere. But I haven't because I go through as much as I have my own freedom, but I also go through my censorship that is caused by the occupation and also caused by society. There are things that I want to do, but I just realized, what if? I'm in my early 20s I care so much sometimes about what how people re- will react like I'm conscious about it but it's something that I'm working on because artists should be free you know artists should have this freedom but not in Gaza it's an exception because it's a different planet yeah the practice of screening and rejecting male 
art, all of that is something that happens in American prisons as well. American prisoners often are unable to get books, they're unable to get certain resources, and it's simply because the structure of the prison does not allow those specific things to enter in. They're worried that those people will become educated in philosophies of liberation and <laughs> that yeah. the practices, the conditions of the prison will get out to the outside world and there will be repercussions. Yeah, that's a good point because, and, and that made me think of the Palestinian prisons that actually wrote books in the prison and did small paintings because in, in the prison, they were only allowed small canvases and little material. And that what really inspired my journey with liberation. I reached the point where even when I was in Turkey, I traveled to many countries and spoke at universities here and there. And I was having this burden of occupation. I felt constrained and I felt like, you know, even in my body, I didn't feel like I'm free. I felt like there is a prison inside me. And as a visual, as the visual person, this prison was very well visualized inside me. And then when I remembered this bit about prisoners producing and, and doing their master degrees and, and painting inside, that inspired me to say, okay, I feel occupied, but guess what? I'm going to be free. You know, I'm free. So that's why I, I call myself, myself, I'm a free Gazan woman because I'm free to, to say no. I'm free to wake up in the morning and eat what I like. I'm free to speak with the person that I like. So I started seeing freedom in these small bits that nobody even realizes, but it's something that I enjoy every single day in the capacity that I can. So it's also being a little bit radical with being free under the most brutal occupation in, in the yeah. modern world. I'm reading George Jackson's prison letters right now. He's a black liberation activist who was murdered by the prison that he was captured by. And I'm learning so much about the Palestinian experience mm -hmm. from his book. There's so many similarities and it's just, uh, it's, it's allowing me to really, truly be grateful for the things that I do have, the freedoms that I'm able to experience, the small moments like ice cream or waking up and hugging my partner. Like these are such crucial aspects of human existence that people often overlook because they take it for granted, right? They have never had, they've never been in a situation where they didn't have access to chocolate. They've never been in a situation where they didn't have access to canvas. Yeah. That's right. And, and this also, like, thank you for bringing this up because when the ceasefire happened, it was early in the morning. And I was like, finally, I'm going to get some sleep now. But I couldn't. And that was not because of the bombings. That was because of the loud drones in the sky hovering. And I was like, for God's sake, just give me one day break. I want to sleep. <laughs> but it was the loudest it's ever been. And it was more like, I felt that this military drone was giving me this, you know, yes, I'm not going to bomb you, but I'm going to disturb your sleep. I took it personally, okay? <laughs> Peace is no longer a priority because if you see my art, I always draw doves and white birds and, you know, I want peace. And I said, no, I don't want peace. I want freedom. 
because there should never be peace when there is occupation. And because what is hindering the way of living in peace is actually the fact that we are living under occupation. So I said to myself, I'm no longer going to paint the doves. I'm going to paint freedom because once we are free from the occupation, peace will be like a byproduct. It will be, it will follow the process. So yeah, it's it's interesting how much I learned uh, after the attack. I just became another person because when you go through a trauma, you go through it as a person and you survive it as another person. Yeah, Malcolm X once said, a person depriving you of your freedom is not deserving of a peaceful approach, right? Mm -hmm. True freedom was never safeguarded peacefully. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Who are some of the artists that inspire you, whether they're Palestinian or not Palestinian? I have lots, you know, I get inspired by a lot of artists, singers as well, musicians. But when it comes to, to paintings, you know, Picasso remains the biggest, although I started seeing his artwork differently after his abuse to women. But uh, I grew up thinking that Picasso was uh, the master of art and was uh, the father of art. You know, artists, I love Sliman Mansour. I love how eloquent he is, how how much he's responsible for uh, the cause and how much he's committed to, to the Palestinian cause. And I also love that he paints women more than men. Sorry for offensing you for the second time, Michael. <laughs> Nabil Anani. I love his style in a way that there's a child in him that keeps appearing in his portraits. I love also Mona Hatun. I would love for people to listen to, to Shikir art. She's Palestinian Lebanese and, and she paints, uh, she actually does illustrations. Samia Halabi, she lives in New York. She's a huge abstract painter who's known for her innovation. Tamam al-Akhad, she, I never met her, but I already feel like she's a mother because she's a very sweet person and also, you know, she paints very beautifully. So there are many, actually. Like, I can go on and on, but I'm always inspired by honest art, you know, uh, uh, without even looking at the history of the artist, which is very important, but the artwork, no matter when and where it was created, as long as it speaks to me, it's, it inspires me. Manak, you and I were talking before we started recording about how art is healing and obviously how it has been a part of your healing process. And keeping in mind that in Gaza, mental health services are really, really scarce. And also with the understanding that over half of the population of Gaza are children under 18, many of whom are actually going through this PTSD, but it's not a post-traumatic stress disorder. Continue. It is a continuous traumatic yeah. stress disorder. Have you thought about working with children in Gaza? Have you, is this something that you've explored before? Or do you know others that are using art to try to heal children in Gaza from what they have experienced? That's a great question. In fact, there are several centers, not many, but a few centers like Al-Qattan in the city and also Nawa. But these are main organizations who help young people try to express themselves. And especially after the last attack, and there was even like an exhibition of these, you know, portraits that were created after the attack for these young children to express themselves and to express what they've gone through. 
So I haven't had the chance to work in person like with these young people. But during the attack, I got my sister and my brother. She's 11. My brother is 15. I brought them to my studio and told, I gave them like material and papers and, and colors. And I told them, go for it. Like try to, to draw whatever comes to your mind. So I think we are getting there like when it comes to, to art as healing. We are there, but it's important to say that it's not enough. You know, it's not sufficient. Art is healing. Yes, it gives you the sense of suppressing yourself or finding, finding it joyful to create a beautiful piece. But when you are talking, for example, my brother, he's 15. So he's the same age of uh, siege on the Gaza Strip, survived his fourth attack. You know, living in a society that growing up here is not healthy because the society isn't healthy and people are changing, not in a positive way, but in a more negative and individualistic way because of, you know, because of so many reasons. So each person, each human being here needs a professional person to talk with them. Some people will need medicine because there are people who are depressed. There are people who are suicidal. There are people who have witnessed many losses of family members. I remember my mom had a student in 2014. She was the only survivor of her family. So I don't think that giving her a piece of paper will help and tell her, like, go, draw, uh, go do a drawing. She needs a real help. And unfortunately, this is not available for the Gaza Strip. And, and one note, we also do not have enough awareness of, of the importance of mental health, but we are getting there, like people are realizing. But, you know, we have here this kind of extreme approach, like you only go to, to a psychiatrist when you are almost dead, you know, when you are crazy. Some mess in, in the society that sometimes someone can envy you and you can your life can turn into hell. You wouldn't really find someone who feels bad just going to a psychiatrist to feel better. Like we, it's, it's more like a cultural thing. It's definitely a cultural thing because this exists even outside of the land of Palestine, amongst Palestinians in exile, and even amongst Arabs and Muslims more broadly, whether they be overseas or in the West. And I think it is changing, but I do think that it's something that is, that we're, we're sort of, our generation is part of the generation that is changing that, right? And trying yeah. to raise awareness about the importance of mental health and, and the need to, to really seek out a professional to, exactly. to assist you getting through these really difficult life events and that, you know, you can't just pray it away. You can't just, exactly. you can't just make dua and it'll just be better. You know, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's prayer is part of the, the answer, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. Exactly. And, and we have something very important to mention there is with survivor comes guilt you know so some people they and even myself when i think of, of going to therapy and i say what there are people who literally lost their entire family and me just going to fix my mental health and it's ignorant and it's stupid i know but it's something in in the psychology of a human being that when you see someone who suffers way more than you you start to, you start having this guilt that who I am to actually just go to a therapy when there's people who need more urgently than me and that who, there's people who lost more than me. Trust me, there's a lot of complexity in 
not only Gaza, but also in the humans in the Gaza Strip. We come to the point where we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand why we think this way, why we always predict the worst. And, but, and, and so it takes, and I'm going through this journey of, of self-discovery and self-healing and self-liberation, which I'm finding really interesting. And I'm finding, like, I feel proud of, of me to, to have reached this point where I needed to focus on me eventually. I'm not a victim and I don't live as a victim, no matter how much it's inevitable that, you know, just the fact that I'm a refugee and born as one, it, it's inevitable that I'm a victim, but it's up to me to choose if I want to continue my life with this feeling of being a victim or I want to live life to be as happy as I can to, to achieve my goals and have dreams and to live my best version of me. So it's up to the human being to decide where to, to go with, with the conditions they have. Yeah, I think this aversion to therapy is definitely a cultural thing because when I was a teenager, my parents found me smoking weed and they were like, he needs therapy. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, people are surviving bombs and they're like, ah, just pray it away. And then a few other points, I've heard both perspectives, right? I've heard people who have been in situations where people they know were murdered and they felt guilty for surviving. They felt like they didn't deserve it. And then I've heard the opposite situation from an Iranian scientist, right? He survived a car bombing from the Zionists and five of his colleagues were murdered. And the interviewer asked him, how he felt. And he said something that I did not expect. He said that he envied his colleagues because the struggle was over for them. He has to wake up every day and still possibly experience the same thing again. Exactly. It is because, you know, even when I think of myself moving on and it's like a new day and a new, new morning and, you know, these affirmations, like, I am healthy and I'm wealthy. <laughs> but I also, there's part of me that is so, like the trauma of the attacks I lived is so present. So now even when, while I'm talking with you, Michael and Clara, I, you know, it's something that I can't really, like in the back of my mind, it's so present what I survived. And it just gives me this feeling of, alienation you know just feeling like you come from another planet where in fact we are all human beings who are really very uh, we can be very connected and we can go through similar things but you know it feels that it's too present because the mind as i said no matter how much you heal there's still part of you that does not process it that will live with you so when i speak about nightmares it's something that happens Occasionally, sometimes you wake up in the middle of a night and, you know, you, you think there is bombing outside, but it's in fact, it's happening inside. And, and once I, I looked in the streets of Ariman, it's uh, a neighborhood that, that is the center of, of, of course, Lara, you know it, Ariman, which is... That's where my family is you know, from. Yes. So it's called the San Jose of the Gaza Strip, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's like the best neighborhood here. So I saw some destroyed buildings. I walked in, in these streets because every street in, in the Ariman neighborhood, it's where I live too. It, it reminded me of how much beautiful the neighborhood was. You know, people would come in, you know, in, uh, 
special occasions and they would work there. So it's a very vibrant and very colorful neighborhood. So, and I was looking at all these high buildings that were like 15 floors all in the ground. It was like a very, you feel like it's a mass destruction. And I was like, these buildings will eventually be constructed if Israel allowed the construction material to get in. But who will build my bomb cells? That sounds kind of deep, but in fact, it's not. Because you feel that there's part of your cells are really dead. They are awakened. They are very present. But there is something that feels like death inside one's body. So it just shows that the material loss it can be fixed. Money can get to the city. And, and people who are in need can have some money. But there are damages that cannot be healed with money, which is the psychology of the human beings and the human loss. Looking forward, Malak, what do you see for the future? What, what are your dreams? Where do you hope to go? What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah. Personally, professionally, what do you hope for? You know, that's, that's a great question. You know, being from the Gaza Strip, or at least a refugee here, there is a kind of burden. Whether I love Gaza or I hate it, whether it's home or not home, I do feel like I'm under the Gaza effect. You know, I'm under the Gaza influence. So I really hope that injustice here will end because there are beautiful people here and beautiful kids. Whenever I see children, I can't help but wonder about the future of these kids because they deserve to get education. They deserve to live in freedom. They deserve to meet other Palestinians in the West Bank and, and 48. Like, I can't even, you know, imagine I'm even speaking about Palestinians meeting other Palestinians because it should be something unquestionable. You just meet people who live few few meters away from you even. So I hope for these children to get mental health assistance to for these children because if you ask, I bet there are hundreds of uh, children who don't see future who don't see hope and who feel disconnected and who feel depressed. So I'm concerned about this vulnerable part of society. So I would love for Gaza to be free and for Gazans to feel less pain because enough pain, because, you know, we are not made of metals. We are made of bones and flesh. So it's like we are really, we want life, you know, and I'm not saying this in a very dramatic way. No, we want to live. We want to have this normal life. You know, we don't want to live in palaces or want to live in a rich city. We want to be able to work and see hope in, in the motherland. I'm surprisingly optimistic. I feel that there's something nice waiting for me. I'm optimistic about uh, going back to Turkey and building my own life again, meeting beautiful people and going through this journey of self-discovery that I'm enjoying to, to learn about me and myself and also to, to keep making art. To, to keep creating and to keep telling the reality as it is without the cliche of us being hopeful and for us being victims or that all these stereotypes, reality should be conveyed in, in a very simple way, in, in a very understandable way for other people to really get what it feels like to be a Palestinian from the Gaza Strip surviving four major assaults and still living. How can people best support you? So can they buy your art on Etsy still? Is your yes. Etsy st shop still open and functioning? Or is it exactly. only open while you're in Turkey? 
So it's opening and it's open and functioning. People can buy the pieces they like. They can request pieces. They can find in Etsy. So they can really have access to it. And by the way, it's the best way for support because, as I said, the originals are really there is a hustle to to shipping and you know as long as I'm here. But with prints, people can really order and uh, enjoy having the pieces in their homes. Okay, that's great to know. We will link to your Etsy store on our website. We'll make sure that that gets posted up with your Instagram as well. Yes. Anything else, Michael? You mentioned that there are Palestinians who don't know their neighbors or people that live near them. And I just wanted to provide some perspective. I know my neighbors and I don't like them. But I think Palestinians should still have the opportunity to meet their neighbors and decide whether or not they don't like them. Yeah. Well, at least meeting them, you know, you don't have to fall in love with your neighbors, <laughs> neither like or dislike, but, you know, learning about other cultures and meeting other people is so important for any human being to know that there is much more to life than their home, you know, or their room. No, there are people with with different stories and inspirations with different history and even with with similar history of surviving attacks because not only Gaza has been under attack there are there is Syria and you know there are other countries and you know and Iraq of course so people should connect for the culture for education for uh, all sorts of uh, life aspects This was more just a message to my upstairs neighbor. If you could keep it down, that'd be great because you're kind of loud a lot. So anyways, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much I'm for sure taking my side. I'm sure they'll, they'll be listening to this episode. They ought to. That has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Malik, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your stories. We so admire all of the work that you're doing. If you want to reach out, email us at palestinepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. And we will upload all of our episodes and sources within a few days at www.palestinepod.com. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Well, Michael has joined us now. Good morning, Michael. Hey. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry to be late. No. I am what they call a professional. Okay. <laughs> How do I sound to you right now? You sound good. Just don't get too close. That's what every woman says to me, huh? <laughs> just stay back. <laughs> yeah, just don't get too close. They mean physically and emotionally. My dog ate some, uh, well, we think he ate a mushroom in the backyard. And I spent the last hour Googling, like, is my dog going to die from poisoning? What movies does he want to watch? <laughs> I don't know. And now he's like sleeping. I'm like, are you fine? Is it liver failure? I don't know. It's so stressful. He's probably just having a good trip. <laughs> Hopefully. He's like, actually, The Grateful Dead's got a great album. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. Thanks. <laughs>